We're in Isaiah 40 today, which begins Isaiah's prophecies that talk to people from Isaiah's uh, lifetime, uh, people that will be alive about 150 years later. Isaiah is speaking into the future because God is giving him a message for people that will be 150 years after he actually says these things. Um, That means that these people aren't born yet, his audience that he's talking to, um, in a sense. He's saying it about people that are future to him, and yet... Uh, it's meant for his readers also in his time so that when they read it, they, uh, th- you know, from that point on until the day when uh, all these events that he's going to be talking about happen, uh, the, the people who are reading it will be prepared for it. They'll know that God has talked about it. And so uh, this is a, a new movement in, uh, in the book of Isaiah. The first 39 chapters, if you remember, was really about the, the dark shadow of the menace of Assyria. And, uh, and that part is done. They're no longer a threat to Judah, or at least that's not the subject matter anymore, right? Isaiah's still alive. Assyria hasn't yet been judged by the time he's writing this, but, um, but the, the, uh, he's going to talk about stuff future, and, and it's going to talk about Babylon, which will be the new, new threat. Because what happens between the time that Isaiah writes and uh, the stuff that he's talking about, what happens is Assyria gets judged. The king dies in his own land by the, the sword. His, his sons kill him. And then uh, a new threat, Babylon, comes in. And when Babylon comes in, uh, they take over and, uh, and they rule for, for decades. They rule over uh, the, the promised land. So when Babylon took over, King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon, he came in and he took everyone that was in Jerusalem and he exiled them. And so... All the Jews are, are, are taken out of, of their own land, right? The, uh, Israel was divided. It was Israel and Judah, and they were all expelled from their land. Uh, and so at this point then, uh, God has used the Babylonians to judge Assyria and Israel and, uh, uh, sorry, to judge Assyria and Judah, and, uh, and, and God's people are scattered. Uh, and this is something that the, the prophet Habakkuk writes about if you uh if you ever want to take 15 minutes to read that book because it's it's one of my favorite uh prophetic books um but here's here's the main passage that we're going to look at uh, or the main point of the passages we're looking at we're going to go from chapter 40 to 48 today and uh and in chapter 40 verse 1 this is what it says comfort comfort my people says your god Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, that she has received from the Lord, L-O-R-D, from Yahweh, uh, that she has received from Yahweh's hand double for all her sins. See, this is a a message of comfort that's going to last for the entire 40 to 48 span right? Uh, this is going to, uh, it's a, a message that changes tone completely because there was so much judgment spoken in the first 39 chapters. And yet in these nine chapters, it'll be comfort, speak comfort to Jerusalem saying her time, her, her time of warfare, the time of hardship, uh, is ended. And, uh, and Isaiah even uses hyperbole saying, uh, like it, it's a, it feels like Jerusalem has suffered twice as much as Jerusalem deserved. And that's, that's how it is with children, right? When, when children are punished uh, and they get the full extent of, uh, of the punishment, they feel like this was so much more than I deserved. And that's what the Israelites felt, felt at that time. They knew what the sentence was. Uh, God even prophesied how long they'd be exiled. And so it went the full measure. And yet it felt like to them, because they were so burdened, it felt like this was double what we deserved, even though they knew that God was just. All right, so the point this week is comfort for God's exiles. Right? The people of Israel have been scattered. 
uh, and, uh, and they're out of the promised land, and they're, ex- they're exiled from the, the nation, the, the, the area that God had set aside for them because they violated their covenant with him. Uh, they've been judged rightly, and yet still, in the midst of their punishment, in the mi- midst of their very well-deserved punishment, God gives hope. And it starts in those first 11 verses of, of chapter 40, um, explaining the, the main point. Uh, I'll continue on in verse 3. This might sound familiar to you. Verse 3, a voice cries, quote, In the wilderness, prepare the way of Yahweh. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up, and every mountain and hill be made low. The uneven ground shall become level, and the rough places a plain. And the glory of Yahweh shall be revealed, and all flesh shall see it together, for the mouth of Yahweh has spoken. Now, this might sound familiar to you if you've ever read the beginning of Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John, because all four Gospels will actually quote this moment in Isaiah. Uh, Isaiah, uh, he's a prophet. And he's a seer of visions, but he's also a hearer of voices. And so he's hearing this voice cry out that, uh, that someone should prepare the way for God to come and save, right? Prepare the way for God to come and save. And it turns out that this was a prophecy about a guy named John the Baptist who would come and, and be a herald to prepare the way for Jesus to come and save. Uh, it, it starts with him being, being that herald, but it, uh, it won't be until Jesus uh, returns like comes back to the earth the second time, it'll be when Jesus returns that he renovates the earth and the valleys are lifted up and the mountains are brought low and everything's kind of redone, a new heavens, new earth, right? But it begins with the voice of this herald, uh, the voice of one crying in the wilderness to prepare the way of the Lord. Now, if you pay attention, Isaiah is emphasizing uh, right at the end of verse five there that the mouth of Yahweh has spoken. And it's a really big deal to him, a theme that he's gonna keep coming back to in these chapters that when God says it, because God has declared it, because God has spoken it, it is absolutely true. That's a, a big deal to the author Isaiah, and it should be a big deal to the people of God. For the mouth of Yahweh has spoken. That's his hammer to say that this is indisputable truth, right? That, uh, that this is the, the word of God, and so it is absolutely true, inerrantly true. And the Jews understood that. And that's partly why they got so furious at Jesus when Jesus would go around saying, truly, I say to you, he'd go around speaking like he had his own authority, right? Because they think for the mouth of Yahweh has spoken. That's where authority comes from. And Jesus walked around saying, truly, I say to you, because he'd say authority comes from me. He was claiming to be God in those kinds of phrases. Verse 10, behold, the Lord Yahweh comes with might And his arm rules for him. Behold, his reward is with him and his recompense before him. He will tend his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in his arms. He will carry them in his bosom and gently lead those that are with young. So this is a promise from God that he'll lead his exiled people in Babylon back to Jerusalem. They'll come back to the land of Judah, back to the land of Israel. Uh, That's the near fulfillment that he's going to take everyone who's exiled in Babylon, and bring them back to the promised land. Bring them back to the nation that he, that he gave them. That's the near fulfillment, right? But the end times fulfillment is that uh, he's going to gather all his people from all the world, and he's going to have them in Jerusalem, right? That's the, the ab- absolute final end. 
So there's a near fulfillment and a far fulfillment because, uh, because that's what he set on doing. That's his plan. And he alone can do that. And that's, that's this idea that he is the Lord Yahweh. He comes with might. And, uh, and the, the descriptions of him, he's saying like, I will do this. I will carry this out. I will save my people because God is saying that God alone is savior. No one else is going to do it. No one else is going to be able to claim credit for it. No one else can share glory with him. He alone is savior. That's this big idea that he's going to be laying out here. All right, well, the message then that Isaiah is going to be speaking is about events that will happen 150 years from when he's speaking, right? Uh, And it'll be when Israel is captive to Babylon. Uh, So from here on out, we're going to go through from chapter 40 to 48, we're going to go through four statements of, uh, of God comforting Israel, right? Four statements to say that God will comfort Israel. He will bring them back. And he's going to give four statements about that. And then he's going to give those same four statements with a little bit more added detail. And I'm just calling it four and then another four, because if I said there are eight points today, that would seem like a really long sermon, but it's really just four twice. Let's start with uh, chapter 40, verse uh, verse. Tw- the rest of uh, chapter 40 is, uh, is the, the first idea. It's the idea that God can do this, right? It's just this idea that God can do it. Uh, he's, he's powerful enough. He's sovereign enough, okay? Um, we'll start in verse 13 to, to look at it. It says, Who has measured the spirit of Yahweh, or what man shows him his counsel? Whom did he consult and who made him understand? Who taught him the path of justice and taught him knowledge and showed him the way of understanding? These are rhetorical questions. Who taught God? Nobody, right? Verse 15. Behold, the nations are like a drop from a bucket and are accounted as the dust on the scales. Behold, he takes up the coastlands like fine dust. Verse 17. All the nations are as nothing before him. They are accounted by him as less than nothing and emptiness. To whom then will you liken God or what likeness compare with him? An idol? A craftsman craftsman casts it and a goldsmith overlays it with gold and casts it for silver chains. Look, you should be getting the, the sense here of the scale and the power of God who is greater than the greatest art or achievement that we can ever get to in this world, right? Compare him to anything man made. And he's infinitely greater. Our best achievements, our finest arts will never compare to him. Verse, uh, verse 28. Have you not known? Have you not heard? Yahweh is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He does not uh, faint or grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. He gives power to the faint and to him who has no might, he increases strength. Even youths shall faint and be weary and young men shall fall exhausted. But they who wait for Yahweh shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. Isaiah is not just describing God's immensity, but he's, he's talking about God's intentions. God intends to renew the strength of his people. God intends to renew the strength of those who are despairing and yet will wait upon him, meaning trust in him to act. Right, and that's uh, that's a big deal because the people at this time were distressed, depressed, oppressed. Right, they were captives in a foreign land, uh, and they were they uh, they were there for seventy years. They had children who never knew what the promised land was like. They had children and, and grandchildren who did not know what it was like to be in the land that God was giving them, the, the land flowing with milk and honey. 
And so they were, uh, they were dis- filled with despair. They were faint and weary. And that's when, uh, you know, when you feel that way, all you want to do is lie down and sleep, lie down and die. That's, that's what happens when you're filled with despair. You don't want to get up and do anything. You just want to like do nothing. That's, depression does that to us. And yet God says, those who wait on me, I'll renew their strength and it'll be like they're flying with eagle's wings. They'll run without getting weary. They'll, they'll walk and, and not grow faint, right? He's saying like they can, uh, they'll have incredible energy. They'll have incredible joy that comes out of them, even despite their circumstances. An inexplicable joy, a peace that transcends understanding. Well, uh, that's the first idea, that God can do this, and he intends to, right? He can do this, that uh, no one taught him anything. He, is, uh, he alone is God. No, the nations are nothing to him. Uh, they, don't, they don't compare to his power or his immensity, and, uh, and you can't compare him to an idol. God alone can do it, and he, he intends to. Number two, God has planned to do it. God has planned to bring his, his people back to Jerusalem, right? Uh, chapter 41 is this idea that God has planned this. It says in verse one, listen to me in silence, O coastlands. Let the people, uh, peoples renew their strength. Let them approach, let them speak. Let us together draw near for judgment. So this is almost like a courtroom scene, right? Verse two, who stirred up one from the east whom victory meets at every step? It's an interesting statement. He gives up nations before him so that he tramples kings underfoot. He makes them like dust with his sword, like driven stubble with his bow. He pursues them and passes on safely by paths his feet have not trod. Who has performed and done this, calling the generations from the beginning? I, Yahweh, the first, and with the last, I am he. Now, here God is saying that he has prepared someone from the east to carry out his judgments on the nations, that he's just going to go nation after nation. The nations are going to fall. And uh, this conqueror is going to go into lands that he's never been. And he's just going to be destroying everything. Who is this guy? Well, we don't know yet. We'll find out in a few moments. But uh, he's saying that there will be a conqueror who will come and conquer Babylon. And he's, uh, he's a conqueror who's going to be from the east. Uh, God talks, by the way, as if it's a past action, like he's already done this. And that's called a prophetic perfect, right? It's when something is so absolutely certain about a future event that you speak about it like it's past. You know, like if you you completely didn't study for your history test, and then it's, you know, it's tomorrow, and you just go, I'm so dead. Like, it's already happened, you know? I'm doomed, I'm done, it's over right? Um, you speak like it's a past event, even though it's tomorrow, right? That's, that's how the, the prophets will work. When, when they're speaking about future things, they can still use the, uh, the past aspect of it, right? Um, but this isn't a prophecy about judgment. It's a reminder that God loves his undeserving people uh, and will save them by his grace, right? It's that God intends to save his people. Look at verse eight. But you, Israel, my servant Jacob, which is another name for Israel, Uh, You, Israel, my servant Jacob, whom I have chosen, the offspring of Abraham, my friend, you whom I took from the ends of the earth and called from its farthest corners, saying to you, you are my servant, I have chosen you and not cast you off. Fear not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. Verse 13. For I, Yahweh your God, hold your right hand. It is I who say to you, fear not. I am the one who helps you. Verse 14. 
Fear not, you worm Jacob, you men of Israel. I am the one who helps you, declares Yahweh. Your redeemer is the holy one of Israel. Now this language harkens you back to Abraham, uh, whose descendants God promised would be established forever. So he's saying like, like, don't panic. I promised Abraham, your forefather, that his descendants would be established forever. So don't feel like this is the end for you. You will be established forever, right? God says, I, Yahweh, your God, I, Yahweh, your God. And he keeps saying that because that, that's exactly how he spoke to them at the beginning of the 10 commandments when he gave them the law, right? I, Yahweh, your God. And it's this, uh, it's, it's this reminder that he has uh, already rescued Israel from slavery to Egypt, so he can certainly rescue Israel from slavery to Babylon, right? He uses the same opener like that. And he uses the word redeemer because to redeem is to set a slave free. That's, the, that's the, the verb there, right? In verse 14, he's a liberator. He's one who sets people free, captives free. Uh, and he calls himself the Holy One of Israel because that's, that's uh, Isaiah's, like, it's, it's like the title that he, he uses for God in, in this book, Right? This is where you see that title, the Holy One of Israel, come up the most out of the Bible. It's only uh, in a few other places uh, outside of this book because this is the idea that God has a special relationship with his people Israel. Right? And he hasn't forgotten them. He hasn't given up on them. He's actively working on his plan to set them free and bring them home. God can do it and God intends to do it. Look at verse uh, 25. He says, I stirred up one from the north... And he has come from the rising of the sun. He shall call upon my name. He shall trample on rulers as on mortar as the potter treads clay. Now, here's a weird thing. God, again, says that he's prepared someone who's going to come and conquer, right? Except while he he said before that it's going to be from the east, sorry, east, this time he says it's going to be from the north. So are these two separate guys? It doesn't seem like it except the directions that they come from, uh, the, the descriptions of them are, are, are the same, right? It's, that, it's this conqueror that, uh, that will be carrying out the work of God. And so who is this guy? He hasn't told us, but you know, we'll, we'll figure it out in a little bit. His, his point, uh, he doesn't have to name it, but his point is he's like, I'm preparing someone, someone from the east. I'm preparing someone. He's from the north. And he's going to come, he's going to conquer, he's going to get rid of the Babylonians, right? Verse 26, who declared it from the beginning that we might know and beforehand that we might say he is right? There was none who declared it, none who proclaimed it, none who heard your words. I was the first to say to Zion, behold, here they are. And I give to Jerusalem a herald of good news. But when I look, there is no one. Among these, there is no counselor who, when I ask, gives an answer. Behold, they are all a delusion. Their works are nothing. Their metal images are empty wind. And God is just calling out all the other religions, all the other gods, all the other idols, all of that. Because he says, I told you what would happen, and, uh, and I am the one that's, that's giving you the plan, tell, telling you ahead of time exactly how history is going to play out. And when we look at history, that's exactly how it played out. Right? And God's point here is no other God can do this. Right? He, God alone is Savior. All right, number three. Idea number three is that God promised a just ruler. God promised a just ruler uh, from his servant, the Messiah. Okay, that's just so you know who this just ruler is that we're talking about. God promised a just ruler um, from his servant, the Messiah. Ver, uh, cha- that's going to be chapter 42. Look at verse one. It says, Behold, my servant, whom I uphold, my chosen, in whom my soul delights. 
right? Key into this description again. Behold my servant whom I uphold, my chosen in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. Verse four, he will not grow faint or be discouraged till he has established justice in the earth and the coastlands wait for his law. Verse six, I am Yahweh. I have called you in righteousness. I will take you by the hand and keep you. I will give you as a covenant for the people, a light for the nations to open the eyes that are blind, to bring out the prisoners from the dungeon, from the prison, those who sit in darkness. I am Yahweh. That is my name. My glory I give to no other, nor my praise to carved idols. Behold, the former things have come to pass and new things I now declare. Before they spring forth, I tell you of them. God speaks here of how he will restore Judah. And it won't just be about getting rid of Babylon. It'll be about fixing rulership, right? Because even if you got rid of Babylon, you still have a corrupt ruler that's going to take his place. Any human ruler in place is going to be a corrupt ruler. You can have, uh, you can have a, a nation founded on biblical principles, and yet still whoever's in charge of that nation is going to be a, a sinful human being, and there's going to be corruption in, in, uh, in the rulership. There's going to be uh, weakness. There's going to be, uh, there's going to be ignorance. There's going to be mistakes, whatever it's going to be, but, uh, but there's going to be a flawed leadership no matter what. And so God has promised that not only is he going to get rid of Babylon, but he promises a just ruler. You'll finally at some point get a just ruler, a ruler who gives perfect justice. And it's going to be his servant, namely the Messiah. Like key into the description, right, of, of this servant who will rule with justice, the one that will make everything right. The, the, the description goes like this. He's God's chosen one, which oftentimes is, uh, is a, a title that's kind of connected to descendants, uh, so it's God's chosen one or a descendant of God whom God delights in and on whom will be the spirit of God, right? That's, uh, those are the, the features to look for, right? It's, uh, it's God's chosen one. Another word for that could be anointed one, which is what Messiah means, um, or it could mean descendant. Uh, it's one whom God delights in. And one that the spirit of God is upon. Now, when you, when you remember Jesus' baptism, this is where you get confirmation of this very famous prophecy, right? In uh, Matthew 3.17, uh, that's where, where Jesus is being baptized. And God speaks out of the heavens. And he says, this is my son, right? This is my beloved son. That's his chosen one, his descendant. This is my beloved son whom I love, right? Whom, uh, in whom I delight. It's the same same word there, right? Uh, whom I love, whom I, in whom I delight, right? And then the Spirit of God kind of, the Holy Spirit comes down uh, like a dove and rests upon Jesus because God said, I will put my Spirit upon him. So all of that is, is just kind of coming to light when Jesus is being baptized, inaugurated into his ministry. It, it begins uh, there with John the Baptist and Jesus being baptized, and it will end when he returns to the earth at the end times in order to, to consummate all of history and establish his perfect rulership, right? God is promising a servant that will come and bring justice to the earth to save his people. He planned it, and he foretells it. He says it before it happens, right? Uh, Number four, God loves his people for his own glory. God loves his people for his own glory. This is chapter 43, okay? Uh, Start in verse five. It says, fear not, 
for I am with you. How many times is God reminding his people not to be afraid, right? Fear not, for I am with you. I will bring your offspring from the east and from the west, I will gather you. Meaning wherever you are, east and west, I'll I'll bring you together. Verse six, I will say to the north, give up and to the south, do not withhold. Bring my sons from afar and my daughters from the end of the earth. Everyone who is called by my name, whom I created for my glory, whom I formed and made, right? Whom I created for my glory, whom I formed and made. And that's, uh, we have to remember this, uh, this idea here, right? That those who trust in God, who are called by his name, we are created for his glory. He saves us for his glory. Now that's going to mess with us a little bit because we go like, well, that seems kind of selfish, right? Uh, is it because we're nothing and, and he just cares about himself? Well, look at verse 11. I, I am Yahweh, and besides me, there is no savior. And then verse 14, thus says Yahweh, your redeemer, the Holy One of Israel, for your sake, I send to Babylon and bring them all down as fugitives, even the Chaldeans, which is another word for Babylonians, even the Chaldeans, in the ships in which they rejoice. I am Yahweh, your Holy One, the creator of Israel, your king. Right? Uh, there, this, this dual message here that God says, you're my people and I love you. I do this for your sake because I'm, I'm for you. And he says, I do this for my own glory. So which is it? Does he do it for us or does he do it for his glory? And the answer is yes. Right? You, you have to deal with that, that odd tension there. Because people try to say, God doesn't love you. He, he loves his glory. And so he saves you for his own glory. And it's not that he doesn't love you because God so loved the world that he sent his only son, etc., etc. John 3.16, right? The idea is that God does love his people and God is doing this for his glory. Loving his people glorifies him. He absolutely, sincerely loves us, infinitely loves us, and that glorifies him because he's a God of love. God is love, right? Uh, it's important to note that, uh, that he says, for your sake, Right? He's thinking about how it ends for you, not just how it ends for him. For your sake, for how, it's, how the story's going to end for you. He cares about that he, he, because he loves you and because he acts for his glory. The two are intertwined. You can't separate them. Well, those are the four ideas. And then he's going to go over those four ideas again with a slightly nuanced detail, uh, detail right? So uh, the, the idea number one being restated is God alone can do this, right? Not just God can do this, but that God alone can do this. These are themes that have already been stated, but will be more pronounced here in, in chapter 44, verses one through 23, all right? It's God alone can do this. Look at verse six. Thus says Yahweh, the king of Israel and his redeemer, uh, Yahweh of hosts, sorry. I am the first and I am the last. Besides me, there is no God. Who is like me? Let him proclaim it. Let him declare and set it before me since I appointed an ancient people. Let them declare what is to come and what will happen. Fear not, nor be afraid. Have I not told you from of old and declared it? And you are my witnesses. Is there a God besides me? There is no rock, I know not any. Verse 9. All who fashion idols are nothing, and the things they delight in do not profit. Their witnesses neither see nor, uh, nor know that they may be put to shame. 
Who fashions a god or casts an idol that is, a pro- that, is a pro- that is profitable for nothing? Behold, all his companions shall be put to shame, and the craftsmen are only human. Let them all assemble. Let them stand forth. They shall be terrified. They shall, they shall be put to shame together. All of the stuff God gives Isaiah to prophesy, it's all foretelling. It's all a display that God has foreknown, and God is unstoppable, right? If he planned it, it will happen. There is no thwarting or foiling or, or undoing his plan. No other God can do this. He says, I alone am God. There is no other God. No other God exists. And even if you were to believe some other God exists, he says, no other God can do what I've done. No other God has declared like God has declared or saved like God has saved. Every other God is an idol. And God thinks that they're the people that make them are ridiculous, right? Because they make it out of wood and iron and stone. He goes on the rest of the chapter to say, like, even when you make these idols, you cut down a tree and then you, you take a pencil and a compass and a plane and, you know, you, you sit there and you fashion it and you, you, you take some wood and you, you make it into your idol and the rest of it you're using for your campfire. You're burning it. And he's like, what, what is this? Your God came out of a tree, right? He says, that's not me. God is not formed or fashioned by anything that, uh, that hands have made. Idols are made that way. Idols can't save. Only God can save. Idea number two, when it's restated, it's not just that God has planned this, but God has planned Cyrus to do this. Specifically Cyrus, C-Y-R-U-S. God has planned Cyrus to do this. This will be the rest of chapter 44, uh, all the way through uh, all of chapter 45, right? Look at chapter 44, verse 24. It says, thus says Yahweh, your redeemer, who formed you from the womb. I am Yahweh who made all things, who alone stretched out the heavens, who spread out the earth by myself. Verse 28, who says of Cyrus, he is my shepherd and he shall fulfill all my purpose, saying of Jerusalem, she shall be built and of the temple, your foundation shall be laid. Okay, God drops a name here. He says, Cyrus. Cyrus is going to be the guy that I use to shepherd my people. Cyrus is going to be the guy that's going to tell Jerusalem that they can go back and, and rebuild the temple. That's what he says Cyrus will do. Chapter 45, verse 1. Thus says Yahweh to his anointed, to Cyrus, whose right hand I have grasped to subdue nations before him and to loose the belts of kings, to open doors before him that gates may not be closed. Uh, I will go before you, God saying, I will go before you, Cyrus. I will go before you and level the exalted places. I will break in pieces the doors of bronze and cut through the bars of iron. I will give you the treasures of darkness and the hordes and secret places that you may know that it is I, Yahweh, the God of Israel, who call you by your name. And I want you to key in on that, right? He called Cyrus by his name. That's an important feature here. Uh, Verse five, I am Yahweh and there is no other. Besides me, there is no God. I equip you though you do not know me, right? Cyrus is an unbeliever. Uh, Like I'm gonna, I'm gonna equip you. I'm gonna make, prepare you for this even though you don't know me know me, excuse me, verse six, that people may know from the rising of the sun and from the west that there is none besides me. I am Yahweh and there is no other. I form light and create darkness. I make well-being and create calamity. I am Yahweh who does all these things. Now, the idea God is saying is, I planned this and I planned you, Cyrus, to be my guy. When will Cyrus do this? Well, from when Isaiah is writing, 
It's 150 years later. So right now, Cyrus isn't even born. And God has, has spoken of him. He says, you know, you who I call by name, and I'm foretelling it, and everyone knows I'm, I'm, I'm saying it, because no other God can do this. I can do it, no one else can. I, I declare the end from the beginning. I am the first and the last. He's saying all that kind of stuff, right? Cyrus is the king of Persia, or he was back in the day, right? Cyrus was the king of Persia, and historically, uh, he, he crossed the Tigris from the east to conquer Babylon uh, and overtake also Lydia and, the, and Medes uh, up to the north. So uh, in relation to Israel, he took over the land from the east and the north. And when he did that, you know, there's a new emperor in town, right? And so he wants everyone to like him because he's in charge. So he goes, look, everyone who, who Babylon like exiled from their lands, I'm going to let you return back to your land and I'm going to allow freedom of religion. So you can go back, if you're Israelite, you can go back to Israel and you can rebuild your temple. And so he does that. And so the Israelites start returning from the east and the north. They come back to Israel and Judah, you know, they, they, they come back to their, their homeland and that's when they start rebuilding the temple because, uh, because Cyrus, of, uh, king of Persia, has allowed that to happen. This is 150 years after Isaiah talks about it and that's why God is saying, I'm foretelling it. I'm giving you the plan ahead of time. I'm even giving you his name, all of that stuff because I am God, right? Verse 22, turn to me, and be saved, all the ends of the earth. He wants every, everyone throughout the earth to turn to him and be saved. For I am God and there is no other. Are you picking up that theme? Verse 23, by myself I have sworn. From my mouth has gone out in righteousness a word that shall not return. To me, every knee shall bow. Every tongue shall swear allegiance. To me, every knee shall bow, every tongue shall swear allegiance, right? God use, uh, God's use of an unbeliever, one who doesn't know God. He, he uses Cyrus, an unbeliever. Uh, the fact that he does that shows God's sovereignty over history. The fact that God calls it 150 years ahead of time shows God's power over history. And it shows that God alone is savior. And he says, to me, Every knee will bow and uh, every tongue will swear allegiance, right? And, uh, and, and so who, who's, that, who's he talking about? He's saying, well, to me. God is saying, to God, every knee will bow. To God, every tongue will confess, right? Now that is a line that comes up in Philippians 2, verse 10. It says, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father, right? God says that God is God, there is no other. He alone is Savior. He will share his glory with no other. And yet, here in Philippians 2, Jesus is being glorified. Every knee is bowing to him. Every tongue is is swearing allegiance to him. Everyone will worship him. How can that be? How can God be the only Savior and share his glory with no other, and yet Jesus is the one that's saved and is receiving the glory? The answer to that being simply that Jesus is God, right? That Jesus is God. Well, that's the idea that God has planned Cyrus to do this. And this, uh, that's the, the big idea of idea number two being restated. Now you get idea number three coming back at you in uh, chapters 46 and 47. And it's this idea that God promised judgment to Babylon. Uh, and that's the flip side. He promised a just ruler to, you know, to Israel and he promised judgment 
to Babylon. Look at uh, chapter 46, verse 1. Bel bows down. Nebo stoops. These are Babylonian gods. Bel bows down. Nebo stoops. Their idols are beasts and livestock. These things you carry are, are born as burdens on weary beasts. They stoop, they bow down together. They cannot save the burden, but themselves go into captivity. Listen to me, O house of Jacob, all the remnant of the house of Israel. At the end of verse four, it says, I will carry and will save. He's saying, I will do what the Babylonian gods could not. Verse, uh, uh, verse 11, uh, calling a bird of prey from the east. Sorry, from the east. Right? Who's this bird of prey from the east? That would be Cyrus. Right? Calling a bird of prey from the east, the man of my counsel from a far country. That's Cyrus. Um, I have spoken and I will bring it to pass. I have purposed and I will do it. Right? When God has spoken, when the mouth of Yahweh has spoken, when, when he's declared it, it will happen. Right? God reminds his people that he's bigger than Babylon, bigger than Babylon's gods, Bel and Nebo. Right? He'll end Babylon using Cyrus of Persia. Uh, chapter 46, uh, 47, verse 6. I was angry with my people. That would be Israel and Judah. I was angry with my people. I profaned my heritage. I gave them into your hand, Babylon. I gave them into your hand. You showed them no mercy on the aged. You made your yoke exceedingly heavy, right? Uh, Babylon, I, I judged Judah and I gave them to you. I let you conquer them. That's what he says, verse 8. Now, therefore, hear this, you lover of pleasures. Verse 9. These two things shall come to you, Babylon, in a moment. In one day, the loss of children and widowhood shall come, uh, come upon you in full measure in spite of your many sorceries and the great power of your enchantments. Uh, what he's saying there is, uh, Babylon, you will fall. In one day, you'll fall. And that happens. If you, if you want to hear how that happens, you can go through our, uh, our series on Daniel because it's an incredible story. Uh, the fourth... And final idea, that's in chapter 48. It's that God informs his people for his own glory. Not just God loves his people for his own glory, but God informs his people for his own glory. And you've been hearing this throughout these chapters, right? He's saying, like, I've told it to you. I foretold it to you. I've, I've declared it to you, right? And it's for his own glory. In chapter 48, verse 1, it says, Hear this, O house of Jacob, who are called by the name of Israel. Verse 3, The former things I declared of old, they went out from my mouth and I announced them. Then suddenly I did them and they came to pass. Because I know that you are obstinate and your neck is an iron sinew and your forehead brass, I declared them to you from of old. Before they came to pass, I announced them to you, lest you should say my idol did them, my carved image and my metal image commanded them. Verse nine. For my name's sake, I defer my anger. For the sake of my praise, I restrain it for you, that I may not cut you off. Behold, I have refined you, but not as silver. I have tried you in the furnace of affliction. For my own sake, for my own sake, I do it. For how should my name be profaned? My glory I will not give to another. Now, this probably speaks for itself, right? God has declared what will happen. He's done it before, and he's doing it now, right? Everything he's declared before came to pass, and he's saying, I'm telling you new stuff now, right? And I'm doing it again, and I'm telling you now so that you can't pretend that it was something else that saved you. You can't pretend it was Cyrus who saved you and, and sent you back home. You can't. It's God who did it. 
God raised him up. God allowed him to, to uh, con- conquer. You can't glorify anyone else. You know, uh, my glory I will not give to another. He does it for his own sake, for his own sake. Everything he's saying, everything he's prophesying, everything he's foretelling, he's saying, I'm telling you ahead of time so that when it happens, you'll know who I am, that I'm not, I'm not freaking out and I'm not despairing and I'm not weary of the troubles I see in society. I am not, uh, I'm not brought down by all this. I'm outraged by injustice and I, uh, and I have compassion on, uh, on the downtrodden and on the defenseless, but I'm not in despair. I don't feel like it's hopeless, right? He says, I renew strength. I alone am God. I've declared it from old. I have a plan, comfort, comfort for my people. That's what he says. Now, all of this you can see very clearly um, from these chapters. It's intended for the Israelites during their captivity in Babylon. It's not addressed to Southern Californians in the year 2020, right? It's, it, it's not addressed to us. The, the prophetic books are like that. They're all basically about Israel, almost all of them, right? You have a few exceptions like Obadiah, but you, you, basically it's about the people of Israel and it's warning them, like, if you don't repent and if you don't turn back to God, you're going to get thrown out of the promised land, or you're not going to get to come back. You know, it's going to be a lot of warnings and things. You get a, a bunch of those in, uh, in the prophetic books, right? And those are messages back to Israel in history, not necessarily to us right now. So we have to work on this and ask ourselves, like, how does a passage like this affect us, right? You read this and you go, ah, God saved Israel. Praise the Lord for that. That is good. But then does that have any kind of uh, bearing on us now? It gives us plenty of theological insight into God's sovereignty, into his grace and his plan for the end times. But but I want you to consider this message of comfort that God gives to his people because he cares about what's happening to his people. For your sake and for his glory, he's going to act, right? Like just just digest that for a little bit because uh, I don't know if you can relate at least a little bit in the situation today, but this is the most pronounced tension and, and time of uncertainty that I've seen in the church in Southern California uh, over the issues of racism, politics, safety, healthcare, you know, all that kind of stuff, government, law enforcement, policing, all that, you know, this, there's so many questions that are throw, being thrown around. In the past month, I've been asked more questions about how Christians should feel about these things than I would argue all the years that I've been pastoring. You know, I, I've got this, this question and answer section on my website and there are no questions about like police and, and racism and stuff. It's just not on there because nobody's been asking that. And, you know, it's just collecting over 1,500 questions on my website. And yet, just this past month, I can't begin to describe how many times a day I'll get a text from, from people at our church, from people outside our church, just going, hey, uh, you're a pastor. What do you think about this? How should Christians feel about this? How how should we act about this? And how many people are saying like, I'm so overwhelmed. I feel so hopeless. I feel so helpless. How many times we go like, I'm in despair. And I look at these nine chapters and, uh, and I look at the God of comfort, right? He says the Holy Spirit is in every single believer and the Holy Spirit is a comforter. That's, that's what he says in John 15 and 16, the comforter the Holy Spirit, that the Spirit of God should be speaking to us a a message of peace and of comfort, not comfort zone, like I don't want to do anything that makes me feel uncomfortable, not that, but comfort that when there's trouble, you have a rock to stand on, right? When, when, uh, When there's crisis 
in life, when there's, when there's trouble in society, you have stability because of Yahweh your God, right? That his righteous right hand can uphold you. Uh, this, this idea that God is a comfort, he speaks comfort to his people. And it, it, it evokes um, several thoughts in me uh, that I hope will encourage you. But first is that God alone is Savior. Okay, like, think about this idea. God alone is Savior, which means that no society will ever fix itself. Consider that in this time. Because right now, everyone's rallying behind what cause to, you know, to support and, and whether or not this organization or this movement is, is right or wrong. And, and, and we think if we put funding here or if we change some laws and policies there, etc. Um, but no solution thought up by a society will be a true fix. That's just a guarantee that God gives you. He says, I alone am Savior. I alone will give you a, a just ruler. And it's going to be Jesus. Right? He, he doesn't think that, that we will come up with the solution ourselves and fix ourselves and stuff because he knows who we are. Right? Even as covenant people went astray, people who had the word of God. And in a nation that's, that's run by, by sinners, what we're going to get is sinful government. That's just what's going to happen. So, you know, all of our problems we're thinking of right now, they will be solved. There's a promise they will be solved. And, but when they're solved, they won't be solved by us. That's just... That's the plain truth that God declares. God alone is Savior. And we can certainly ask ourselves how we're going to improve our justice system, how we can improve uh, our, our laws and our, our government against racial bias, how we can improve health care against pandemics. That can, we, we, can, we can certainly you know, figure that stuff out and, and try, to, uh, try to improve our society that way. That's, that's good and that's... That, that's something we were really kind of called to do, right? But we should ultimately know that true justice will be brought by Jesus because of his rulership, not ours. And true health care will be brought by Jesus because of eternal life. The idea that God is Savior is something that, that, uh, that shines through. God is the only Savior. God alone is Savior. Another idea is that uh, we're never called to panic. God's people are never called to panic. God is a comforter, right? God can save us. He plans to save us. He promised to save us. And he loves us for his glory. So of course he'll save us. And, uh, and that, should, that should guarantee us certain things. First, the solution's not in the here and now. The solution is in the ever after, right? Uh, that's, that's really where the comfort is. So if, if, if we're thinking, if we fix the government, everything will be well. That's not the final solution, right? The final solution is to be in, in Jesus's government, in his kingdom. That's, that's the, if you love anyone, and, and uh, if you love any, any person or any people group and want them to, uh, to experience true justice, it's not just let's fix some laws in the United States of America. It's let's get them into the gospel, Let's get them to know Jesus so that they will have real justice. Not some, some easier laws or easy, easier government and policing and stuff here. The point is to get them into a place where the rulership will not ever be corrupt. Where, where, uh, where the, the goodness of God will, will reign over us. Right? That's what we're looking for. 
right? Because uh, look at the, the stuff that's going on in society. Where, do you, where are you going for comfort? Where are you going for a solution, right? We're thinking if we just rally behind a cause or if we, if we uh, protest against this or if we stand for that and hold a sign for this and that. You know, and, and it's not that we can't take action, right? If you want to stand uh, in, in some kind of a protest peacefully and stuff, if you want to, okay, go ahead and do that, right? But you should know that God is the solution, that Jesus is a solution. Anything else is really a temporary measure. It's an improvement. It's not a solution. And we ought to be working for a solution, not just improvements. Comfort is only, um, is only found in God, which w- one of the most honest admissions we, we have to make is that comfort then is only for God's people. Because any comfort you make in the government right now for unbelievers won't mean a thing after they die. Right? If, if you care about anyone, the, the best thing you can do for them is not fix a policy for them. It's to get them into Jesus' kingdom. Because the comfort that God's talking about, comfort for his people, that comfort is only for his people. That's why we spread the good news. Right? That's why we go out with the gospel and we tell them that Jesus, he paid it all. Right? There, there's a reason why his body was broken and his blood was shed. There's a reason for this. It's because there's injustice and there's, uh, there's, there's murder in our society today. Unjust murder, right? There's, there's uh, a, a, a huge list of atrocities that take place in the world around us. And Jesus experienced all that. He walked that path for us to pay it. And then say, like, I know what that is. I know what injustice is. I know what it means to be mocked for being good. I know what it is to suffer for, for doing nothing wrong. I know what it is to be beaten and tormented and betrayed and then killed. I know what that is. And he has compassion on everyone who has to go through that. His compassion in such a way that he connected to it and experienced it himself so that he could bring them in, so that we could turn to him and say, Jesus, you you paid the price and you called us in to a real kingdom, a real government, a real rulership, real justice, real health care, real life. It's not just Babylon that troubles God's people. It's everything in this world of sin and death. That's why we got we to gotta pray for God's hand to heal our nation. We got to pray for God to give peace to our troubled souls. Right? If, if at all you feel your, your spirit moving into despair, that is not the Holy Spirit talking to you. That's some other spirit. The Holy Spirit is a comforter and says, even if your world is exploding around you, you can stand on the rock of Jesus. Everything for you in eternity is resolved, is secure. What you go through now you go through and, and, and it's a moment, an opportunity for you to get the gospel out to as many people as you can. We pray for the church today to be a light in this dark, dark time because how easily our flesh motivates us to, to act out in fear or in anger instead of in love and in courage to fear not because God is God, right? Take, uh, take heart Have courage. Do not fear. He is God. He alone is Savior. Comfort. Comfort my people, says your God. 
He says, uh, fear not for I am with you. Be not dismayed for I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. God can do this. God has planned it. God loves us and saves us for his glory. And God does it through Jesus. He's done it through other people in the past, through Cyrus. He's done it through, through other vessels in the past as the, as the near future fulfillment. But the real fulfillment, the ultimate fulfillment is in Jesus, who is God. Jesus, who alone is Savior. If you believe it, say amen. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the truth. Thank you, Lord, for declaring long before what would take place. We look upon your sovereign voice as you speak, and when the mouth of Yahweh speaks, it comes to pass. We have no reason to doubt. So when you tell us not to be anxious about everything, anything, but in everything, to, to, in prayer and petition, with thanksgiving to come before you, when you tell us that our reward is great for those who are persecuted, insulted, who are oppressed, who suffer injustice because of you, when you tell us that the world will hate us because it hated you, and yet your reward is sure, that eternity is secure with you, and you will save us and provide us comfort in your kingdom forever. It is absolutely true. And so in this specific time of turmoil in our society, in this time of, of unrest, where there are health pandemics and natural disasters and political catastrophe, race wars. Lord, in this time, we pray that the people of God would pause and be sober in our thinking to be slow to speak, quick to listen, to refrain from throwing judgment so immediately, but to be careful to hear what God would want to do in these kinds of situations and to respond with compassion the way that God is compassionate and to be outraged at injustice the way that God is outraged at injustice and then to wait upon him because God alone is Savior. We pray, Lord, that we'd be responsible with, uh, with what political influence we, we might have, what comfort we can give. Lord, if you're a comforter, we too want to give comfort to those that we can by pointing them to the one who is the source of comfort, namely Jesus. Pray for your church, Lord, that in this time we would shine as a light that we would tell the world what you stand for and that we'd invite them to your kingdom through the work of Jesus on the cross. Bless your church, Lord. Pray for Christ's glory in his name. Amen.